0: Thank you, Ruth Ann. God does that for His children. He does keep us safe till the storm passes by. And that's dependent upon God, not upon us. This morning we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, talking about godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which results in salvation and no regrets. And then Paul lists a number of other items that uh, were present in the Corinthians. And remember that sorrow is important if there's going to be repentance. There can be no repentance without godly sorrow. And as repentance takes place, that leads to salvation We're not talking about coming into a relationship with God, but deliverance from that sin, but also the guilt and so on that is involved. And we want to look at a passage of Scripture tonight in the Psalms in just a few moments. But keep in mind that godly sorrow measures in light of God, Christ, and Scripture. It's not what we think, it's what God would say. Measured in light of God, Christ, and Scripture. Self moves to the background. It is very easy for us to look at things in our life and say, I'm okay, and then you read scripture and you think the attitude of your heart is not good or the way you are thinking or responding may not be good. Godly sorrow should be a pattern of life. It's not something that is one day and then five years later, you think about it and you have godly sorrow again. It should be a pattern of life in the sense that We realize we have sinned. There's a willingness to express godly sorrow. We're not going to turn to Nehemiah 9, but you'll find in Nehemiah 9, there's an example there of godly sorrow as the children of Israel, those who came back and the the walls of Jerusalem, you know, been rebuilt. And there was godly sorrow because they had been marrying people from the land and so on. And Nehemiah gets pretty strong there, you know, he's pulling hair out and, you know, really taking people to task because of the way they're living. But there is a time of confession for those, not just Nehemiah, but also other Israelites. Repentance, as we were discussing this morning, is turning from sin, turning to God, turning to Christ, turning to Scripture. It's doing it about faith, you're going one direction, you turn around And you go the other. Repentance involves words and actions, thoughts and beliefs, desires and attitudes. It's so easy to repent of words and actions, but not deal with the heart. That's like putting paint on a rusty barrel. You put paint in a rusty barrel, it may look good for a little while, but the rust comes through. Dealing with sin and words and actions is like pulling the top of a weed off. Our kids sometimes, when they were younger, you'd tell them to go out and pull weeds, and they would pull weeds, and you look at some of them, and they just pull the top off. It's going to grow back. You've got to deal with the root. So the passage we want to look at tonight is Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Now, remember, the background and the context of Psalm 51 is that uh, David, as king, stayed home one spring when his army went to war. And we know that, according to 1 Samuel 11 and 12, he saw a woman bathing on another roof. And remember, housetops were flat many times, and they used those for doing some things. We know that he had Bathsheba brought to him. There was a sexual relationship as Sheba became pregnant, and she told David, and we know that David called Uriah, that's her husband, home with an intent that Uriah would go home and have sexual relations with his wife, and David would be off the hook. Uriah, being a very noble and dedicated man, would not go home. He said, my fellow soldiers are on the battlefield, I will not go home. He slept on the king I think it was the king's porch you know and David again tried to get him to go home got him drunk but he wouldn't go home again then he sent him back to battle carrying his own death letter to the commander put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle make sure he dies and the commander was no dummy he knew what was happening he knew David wanted Uriah dead we know Uriah died a baby came along, and uh, God was not silent. He appeared to be silent for a period of time. God had Nathan come to King David and told him the story of this rich man that had all kinds of sheep, and this rich man had a neighbor that only had only one. The rich man had company coming, and he went and took the... His neighbors, one sheep, killed it to feed his company. And David became very, very angry. And Nathan said, you're the man. David knew immediately what was going on. He had multiple wives. And he took Uriah's single wife. Psalm 51 is in the context of David. Repenting, and as you think about Psalm fifty-one, there is a prayer for individual restoration in verses one and two. David says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me away, or wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions." I'm sorry, I wanted to stop at verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin. Now notice, he talks about God and his unfailing love. Talks about God and his great compassion. And then he says, blot out my transgression. He doesn't say, blot out my failure. He doesn't say, blot out my mistake. Blot out my blowing it. Blot out my transgression. Here's what you say. And I have transgressed. I parted from what you say. In the law. The Mosaic law. Wash away my mistake. No. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. One of the reasons. David. Experienced victory. After his confession. Was that he named sin. For what it was. He didn't beat around the bush. you didn't call it a mistake. you didn't call it a failure or anything else. It was sin. And as people come to God. Sin needs to be addressed as sin. Or transgression addressed as transgression. I'll pick on the ladies for a second. So your family complains about something you prepared for a meal. And you say to your family, no, that hurt me deeply. I put time and labor into preparing this meal and you cut it down. You cut me down. And they say, oh, mom, wife, don't worry about it. It's not that serious. That stands in contrast to the kids or grandkids or husband or someone else in the family and say we sinned against God we cut you down Ephesians 4 tells us not to use a single cutting word we sinned against you we sinned against God we're sorry see anytime you minimize a transgression an iniquity or sin you just lock yourself more strongly into that sin because you're not addressing it from God, Christ, and Scripture's point of view. And I'm not talking just big sins that we might say David committed. David goes on. There's confession and contrition in verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and then what is evil in your sight? so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Notice again, I know my transgression, not my failure, not my shortcoming, but my transgression, my sin. I've sinned against you. I've done evil in your sight, so that you're proved right. See, if David had said I did not sin, he's proving himself right and saying God is wrong. So when David admitted his sin, confessed his sin, he's saying, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I have sinned. It's like children arguing with parents. And I really it's not really that bad and so on they're trying to prove mom and dad wrong David says you were right he recognized the depth of his sin and it came from within surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me surely you desire truth in the inner parts you teach me wisdom in the inmost place David is going to the It's going to the thinking, the desires, the motives, the attitudes. Have any of us ever said anything critical about President Obama? Have you ever said anything critical? You don't need to raise your hands. Let's suppose you said something critical about President Obama that would be in violation of Romans chapter 13. We're to respect those in authority over us. 1 Timothy 2, we're to pray for them. We're not to have any cutting word come out of our mouth. And we say, well, he is pretty bad, isn't he? Now we're trying to justify ourselves. Do we stop to consider that sin begins within? Lord, I was critical of our president. That sprang from within. I have evil desires within. I let those desires conceive, and they gave birth to sin in my thinking, and then in my thinking, I mouth these words. David is saying, you want truth in the inside. This week, Ruth and I were talking, I said sometimes I'm tempted to walk in people rather than in the Spirit. Tempted to live in people rather than live in the Spirit. And by that I mean I can dwell on people and what they are or not are not doing. Rather than walking in the Spirit, how I should think about them, how I should pray for them. Well, my kids aren't doing this and this believer is not doing that. My neighbor's not doing this. <coughs> That's sin, you know. That's walking in people, rather than walking in the Spirit. That's on the inside. And David is looking at the inner person. He goes on in verses seven through twelve, a prayer for restoration. Cleanse me with hyssop. In Exodus chapter twelve, the children of Israel would take took a hyssop. It's a plant from the mint family. And they put blood on it and they put it in their doorpost. What happened because of that? The death angel passed over. What did David do here? He stole a man's wife, he committed adultery with her, and he had her husband murdered. And he says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Listen as I read several verses from Psalm 32, a parallel Psalm. Psalm 32, verses 2 through 4. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I was silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Apparently from the time David committed sin until his confession, God was dealing with him. His physical well-being was influenced. And he says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. There was physical consequences. He goes on in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquity, creating me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit in, within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain, or to sustain me. Notice again in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Not my failures, not my shortcomings, but my sins. Blot out my iniquity. And then create in me a pure heart. Restore to me in verse 12 the joy of your salvation. You see that David had a godly sorrow. And there was a repentance. And we know that David went on and wrote this psalm along with other psalms after his sin. Why could he even do that? Because he experienced salvation and no regrets. In verses 13 through 17, we find his thanksgiving. Then I will teach, that is, after this cleansing from the Lord, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. Blood guilt involves the murder that he committed. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. There's a marked change taking place. The end of verse 14, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, my mouth will declare your praise. The sin has been dealt with. It has been confessed. It has been handled. It is behind him. Now he'll teach transgressors. God's way. Sinners will turn back to the Lord. His tongue will sing of God's righteousness and declare God's praise. And verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice that I or I would bring it. You do not take delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. God's not merely interested in the outward actions. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Brokenness is essential if there's going to be godly sorrow and repentance. You can tell if someone's broken. I'll start with some extremes. In the last couple of years, I've visited a number of guys in Luzerne County Prison. And in my book and in God's book, they did some despicable things. If you're labeling or putting sin in categories, they're probably near the top. But sin is sin. Understand that remember going to visit the one guy and uh, he whined and complained about the police some. No, he really shouldn't be in there. But he was. But there was no broken spirit. Another fellow explained to me what happened. And he said, I'm here. I will serve my sentence and I hope to get out and be restored to my family. I sensed some brokenness there. A third fellow said I shouldn't have done what I did, but there really wasn't a brokenness. I think about Those of you who are raising kids or have raised children or if you were a child, parents can tell pretty quickly when a child has a broken heart, a broken spirit. When we were dealing with our kids, our basic philosophy was we would discipline them and talk to them until their spirit was broken. You say, when did that come? You can just tell it. You can tell when there's a genuine sorrow. And David says, that's what God wants. Don't raise your hands on this question. How many of you have gone over the speed limit sometime in your life? Don't raise your hand. How many of us here have had a broken spirit over that, that we violated the law of the land? See, we can talk about David's murder as adultery, but how about us in day by day living? We can feed our mind that which may not be good. And I'm not talking immorality, I'm just talking most of what comes via the media is from an ungodly worldview. And we can feed our minds at hours on a day. Do we see that as a sin against God? Because God is concerned about what we take into our minds. A brokenness is, God, I've been feeding my mind in this stuff. It may not be immoral. It may not be what we call actively evil. But it's a worldview that lets you out. And that has influenced me. I'm broken. It's a broken heart. And then David Goes back to national. He began the psalm with individual. In verses eighteen and nineteen, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David recognized that his sin influenced Israel. His confession was going to also influence all of Israel. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem, and so on. Now a couple of questions, and would like some interaction if you're willing to share. Do you practice Psalm fifty one, Second Corinthians seven, godly sorrow and repentance? Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to no regrets. Psalm 51, David is confessing from the heart. So anyone want to respond to that? You're not, I'm not asking you or telling you you have to. Just Do you practice Psalm 51 and 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow and repentance? Have you ever said, well, I don't need to. If you don't need to. Uh, you better read scripture some more because <laughs> God talks about his mercies being new every day You <laughs> know we need that but think about a brokenness of heart next one do you practice Psalm fifty-one, Second Corinthians 7 godly sorrow and repentance in your marriage And in your family, our families or let me say begin with husbands and wives, our husbands and wives acknowledging their sin and seeking forgiveness from each other is that being modeled for children so that children know how a parent sometimes will want their children, to admit they're wrong. But have they ever seen mom and dad admit their wrong and seek forgiveness of each other so that they have a pattern to follow? But then think about that in the context of a family, of parents and children, of an extended family. You know, where there's genuine sorrow, repentance... And that is before God, and then going to the person or individuals that you sinned against. I'm just asking, do you practice that? Do we practice that? You don't need to respond to that. I'm encouraging you to. It makes a tremendous difference in life. See, one of the reasons we get stuck in sin is because there's not godly sorrow and repentance, thus there's no salvation. David named sin for what it was. So I can go to Ruth Ann and say, Ruth Ann, I said some things yesterday that may have appeared to you okay, but the attitude of my heart was not right. I'm sorry I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That was sin against you, and sin against God, and sin against Christ. Well, the next time. I go to say something to her and the attitude of my heart isn't right. It's almost like God says, Whoa, Dan, don't even speak. If you're going to speak, make sure the attitude of your heart is right. See, that's part of salvation. Part of no regrets. How does Psalm 51... 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow and repentance look in a local church. How does Psalm 51, 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow and repentance look in a local church? I'm looking for a response on this one. You ever think about that? What's it look like? tie that in with the number the fourth question what examples of church level godly sorrow and repentance do you know what examples of church level godly sorrow and repentance do you know again just think what's it look like do you know of any How many churches do you know, and you're talking to someone, and they said, well, last week we had a church repentance service. A what? A church repentance service. What's that? Our leaders repented of some sins that are present in our church. You mean everyone in the church is committing the same sin? No, but there's some sins in the church that we repented of. Oh, you must not be a very good church. We're probably like any others. We all battle. We chose to repent of ours. Did you ever hear of that? I mentioned this morning, you know, a church or someone in a church telling me years ago, you know, we're praying for revival and the church in the Years later, they were still praying for revival, and years later, they were still praying for revival. I guess I should have just been courageous and say, quit praying for revival and confess your sins. Repent. If you're praying for it and you want something, then there's sin, and if you're not willing to address it, then quit praying. Because if you're praying for it and you're not willing to confess it, you're in a vicious cycle. You're getting more deeply ingrained in your sin. You pray for revival, and God says, "You want revival? Repent." What's that look like? I'm asking. So, the questions in the bulletin as we wrap it up: Is there a parallel between godly sorrow over sin and future temptation? Is there a parallel between godly sorrow? over sin and future temptation. Sometimes we say, I'm tempted with this. I'm tempted with this. I'm tempted with this. I just can't seem to get victory over this temptation and over this sin. Is it possible that we have not had godly sorrow? Thus no repentance. Thus you just become more deeply ingrained in the sin. This is no reflection on any of you. Okay, I'm just sharing from my own life. When I was a teenager, I got stopped for speeding. The policeman said I was doing 55 mile an hour and 25 mile an hour zone as I went through Mifflinburg. I can't debate the point, I did. I finally came to my senses and said, I got this ticket I lost. Because of the ticket, I have to pay a fine. I lost my license. I got seven points, and I had to go to class. All in one offense. I didn't think it was just. I came to the point. I said, okay, God, I'm guilty. I was speeding. Whether it's doing 55 or not is beside the point. Ruthann thinks the guy just had it in for speeders that night because it was a graduation night. But that's beside the point. Now we're starting to go away from admitting the sun. You see where I'm going with that? <laughs> but God dealt with my heart. And I said, Okay, God, I get caught for speeding, I'm wrong, I need to change. That has influenced me for years now, how I drive. I have a much more sensitive heart. And how you drive is your business. I'm not I'm not getting all uptight over whether you go 36 or 35 or anything like that. But think about life. I used to watch some things on TV that were not really evil, but they really were not edifying. I said, God, this was produced by sinners. And you tell me not to walk in that in Psalm 1. So, God, I'm not going to. See, godly sorrow seems to influence future temptation. I'm not saying you won't ever be tempted. But the level of it seems to change. Another question. What is essential for no regrets living? And can we live no regrets life in a broken, fallen world? No regrets doesn't mean we never sin. It just simply means that when we sin, we practice godly sorrow, we repent, and that brings no regrets. See, if we think no regrets means we never sin, then you may as well die tonight because you're going to sin. No regrets is being willing to deal with sin when it comes. Godly sorrow, repentance... And then that brings no regrets. I acknowledge my sin. I don't have to dwell on what I did yesterday. I don't have to dwell on the fact that I kicked the dog and yelled at the cat and was angry at both of them and so on. I acknowledge them, their history. David could pick up and go on because of godly sorrow. Have you ever experienced local church level Godly sorrow, repentance, and salvation. Again, that's just a thought question. Probably should be practiced more than it is in light of Revelation 2, because five of the seven churches, Christ said, Repent. You're in danger of losing your candlestick. Comments before we pray together? Bill. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And again, I'm not picking on drivers or anything, just an example from my own life, you know, how God had to deal with my own heart. But think about life, how we live, how we respond, and dealing with the heart. Any other comments? Thanks, Father, for your grace. Thank you that in love you continue to work in our lives. And we look at David's life, and we know that he was restored Experience your cleansing, your forgiveness, and so on. And we would say David committed some major sin. We're not debating that, Father. But we can come to you with a godly sorrow. We can come to you with a repentant heart experience salvation deliverance. And that results in no regrets. May that be true in our lives, Father. Addressing the heart and our sin as well as words and actions. May we not compare ourselves with others. May we not be trying to measure others or point out other sins. But in our walk with you, to be sensitive. But as a local church... May we also be sensitive, Father, as families, as married couples, sensitive to your work in our life. In Christ's name, amen.